Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, a very pleasant uh, good morning to you. Just a few minutes late. We had a little gremlin there in our system, but it left with the uh, with Elvis. Left the building with Elvis. Good morning. It is uh, July 6th. Wow. I hope you had a nice weekend. 2022. This is OneRadioNetwork.com. My name is Patrick Timpone. On the first uh, Wednesday of the month, we talk with our real world money dude, and that is Fred Dashevsky. You meet Fred in a minute. If you have a question about your finances, like how to make your house payment, uh, write the White House. No, uh, just uh, call 888-663-6386. Email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. We are going to talk, you and I, after we finish up with Freddie here this morning, about um, why it's important not to listen to anybody when it comes to what you should eat uh, and why that is the case. And uh, I'm going through some different things, uh, experimenting with a new diet and uh, learning a lot about about that. So let's go to Hilton Head, and that's where Fred Dashevsky is. He's a good guy. He is the, uh, the um, head dude, head man at U.S. Coin Capital, where they buy and sell sell gold coins for a living. Mr. Fred, did you have a happy 4th of July? Did you? Oh, I did. Did you? You know, it's a nice place to be on Hilton Head. There was plenty of stuff going on. We've got a a plethora of live music, and Mm. of course, there's a number of places to go watch fireworks. But yeah, uh, it was was a nice, relaxing weekend. I'll tell you, though, it was July 4th, and um, I was watching a couple of videos. I had some time down, and you know, there's a guy, I, I, I want to say his name is Eric Stone. I'm not sure if I'm doing that right. Anyway, he does these like little videos where he goes around and just randomly stops people like on the beach. Oh, I and think says, I've you know, ask him questions. You know, do you know what was celebrating on July 4th? And, you know, <laughs> granted, a lot of these were younger, you know, college graduate age, you know, maybe in their late 20s, early 30s. And I was just stunned, honestly annoyed <laughs> as an American that when he posed the question, you know, what are we celebrating today? And you know, sometimes people were able to say, oh, okay, it's America's independence. And then, you know, the follow-up question would be, okay, who did we separate from in order to gain our independence? And they would just stand there with stunned looks, not able to answer the question, couldn't tell you what we were celebrating, what the rationale for, you know, separating from England was. It was so disheartening, yeah. you know, to realize that people are going through the motions of celebrating these holidays and we've just lost the sense of, you know, what we're celebrating or, the significance of American independence to be lost on, you know, whether theoretically high school and college graduates is just mind-boggling yeah, to me. Yeah, I guess they don't even cover that stuff at the universities, Fred. They must assume the kids know it or something. I don't know. I, you know what I mean? I just don't get it. You know, I mean, how do you graduate fifth grade without knowing that we, you know, separated from England? I, I just don't understand it. it. It just seems so basic. And, you know, to watch them fumble through those basic questions and, you know, it, I think about it and I'm like, well, no wonder people don't understand money. They don't even know, you know, what July 4th is. That's right. I don't, you, so you understand why they don't get, what is it, Article 2, Section 8? Let no state or, sure. Uh, let no state make Article one, section eight, Article, Article 1, one, section ten. You know, yeah. You know, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coins, and authorizing Congress to control and establish the value of money. Yeah, I can get why this is beyond sure. people's comprehension. You know, especially this younger generation who I I don't know what they know or what they don't know, but I again I, I 
was just really disheartened. I was celebrating the fourth and, <laughs> you know, enjoying the idea of our independence and, you know, remembering what the founding fathers went through. I've been, I've been reading a lot about the original constitutional conventions. Oh. And, you know, when, when this, when the people from Massachusetts, like John Adams, you know, first met the, the people from New York and first met John Jay and, and first met people from Virginia, you know, they'd never left their States before. They didn't know how, they would be perceived by other states. They were concerned about, you know, how do people think about Massachusetts people in Virginia and, and yeah. New Hampshire? Would they get along and how would they come to an agreement? And they were so different mentally, and yet they were able to come together with these, you know, great concepts and hammer out this ordeal and, you know, establish this concept and come together as a group. Because we always think of the colonists, you know, in one mindset. You know, we think of them as one sure. unit. We but don't think of them states, as states, individual they were states. Right? Very different. Oh. Yeah, they really were very different people. You know, the the guys who were f farming for a living in Virginia were vastly different from the guys who were more industrialists in New York. And um, it, it's funny because Adams wrote uh, a brief about meeting New Yorkers for the first time and said, you know, they're 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 rude. They're very short. Uh, you try to speak to them, and you get three words into a sentence. They cut you off and tell you what they want you to hear. And I'm thinking, boy, that was in 1776. <laughs> Nothing much has changed. Yeah, I used to have a tape. I think well, it's actually on a cassette, so you can't even play those anymore. Who's got a cassette player? But it was all the um, the Federalists and where they were arguing back and yep. forth. Fred, about whether it should be, you know, central government or states and all of that. And they came to some kind of a, you know, arrangement and they got the Constitution, right? And, and, um, but they were. Well, just getting, just getting them together to first agree. To do that. Yeah, to, yeah. To separate from England. I mean, that was a kind of a large thing. I mean, you're you actually <laughs> saying, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're going to suggest that we all, you know, um, participate in tyranny. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty objectionable for an awful lot of people who felt compelled to say, well, wait a minute, we're loyal subjects of the king. You know, how should we even proceed in something like this? We shouldn't even be discussing this. And yet, you know, they felt they were being oppressed. You know, the British Parliament was just progressively adding more and more oppressive laws to the colonists that, you know, it would have been different were they somewhere else in the British Empire. And they felt as if they were being treated unfairly and didn't feel like they had a voice which was their big issue was not only, you know, was the king beginning to pursue methods of accumulating money by squeezing the colonists, where he wasn't doing this to other British subjects, but the colonists felt as if they didn't have a representative. They didn't have anybody in parliament speaking for their cause. Yeah. And, you know, between these issues, you know, we eventually got to the point where you rallied enough of a mentality between these different men to say, to you know, together that, we accept this notion that we're being abused by this tyrannical power in Britain enough to where we will set aside our own personal differences and, you know, we'll kind of come together as an organization and stand up against the king. And we think it's gone so far that there's no recourse left. There's nothing we can do. We've, we've done everything we can possibly try. And we just think the last uh, resort is separation. So we're going to declare our independence, which was... I mean, that was no small thing against yeah. England. England was the biggest powerful nation on earth, and they had soldiers all over the place there. Even at, when they declared it, right? There were there were swarms of sure. You know, the British. The, we played uh, we played JFK's uh, a rendition right uh, uh, Friday of the Declaration of Independence, and boy, if you really mm, listen to the words of that thing, man, wow, man, 
It was so, yeah. really something. It is really well something. thought out, well written, you know, well executed. And then, you know, again, the oppression continues. So in order to pursue uh, and institute the rules that the king wanted, he started sending troops. So now you have, you know, armed men standing in the in, in the homes of the colonists who had no choice but to house them sometimes for months at a time and, you know, pay for all their food and things like that. And then eventually, you know, one of the bill collectors, uh, you know, the beef kind of got so strong that a group of, oh, let's say, uh, rioters, you know, stood in front of his home in front of Lexington. And, you know, the next thing you know, the British troops are there. And we don't really know historically who shot that first shot, but somebody, somebody did, did and, <laughs> you know, and then the war begins. So and, and after all of that, right, you know, after all that, you read those uh, founding fathers writings and you read the Federalist Papers and you read what went into this thought process and, you know, how extensive it was and how much it took to get to that. Mm -hmm. And then to find in 2022 that you've got people who are, quote unquote, celebrating the holiday who don't even know what it's about. I, it just really bothers me. Yeah, I understand. Uh, we're going to have Richard Proctor on next Monday. He's an, a constitutional expert and we're going to dig in to the 10th Amendment, states' rights, and uh, I think this is going to be a big deal moving forward. Yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah, boy. You know, the, the 9th and the 10th are interesting because they're mirror images of each other. You know, the 9th basically locks down all the powers of the federal government and said, you know, if, if these powers were not specifically delineated, then they belong to the states. And then, you know, the 10th Amendment was effectively we don't want people to misinterpret something to say just because we didn't write it down as a right doesn't mean that we didn't intend for these rights to exist so the wow. ninth and tenth are Pretty, very powerful yeah. because you know one specifically says this is the only power the federal government has and if we didn't specifically delineate that they have this authority they don't have it <laughs> those rights are reserved to states and people and then the tenth said but for the people don't misinterpret it just because we didn't say people have certain rights doesn't mean that they don't have them. Wow. God-given rights, I guess. Is that what they allude to? We we have these rights because we're from God? Well, effectively, they were saying, look, men are sovereign. You know, I mean, we have a right to stand on our own two feet. We have a right to live our lives, you know, that pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And the only objectionable issue they had was where uh, those rights were being you know, uh, infiltrated by powers that were not being fair and that they didn't have a say. Yeah. So they were just asking for a fair shake and yeah. they weren't getting it. And there was no question they weren't getting it because the king was, you know, at the time desperate for money and he saw the colonists as a way of raising revenue and treated them like a third-class citizen. And uh, they just said, well, wait a minute, if we are, you know, truly the loyal subjects of the king, why are we being treated differently than anybody else? And you know, we don't like this. Hmm, we don't like it. Uh, it looks like the current Supreme Court is moving in some interesting directions as far as rights to the states and to the people. The Roe thing, they're, you know, they threw all that back to the states, let each state decide. It's their deal, sure. not us. Um, we shouldn't be in there. And then the, there was a big one. You probably heard about this one. It was, um, it was the, oh, uh, West Virginia versus EPA, and the court said that, you know, the EPA cannot do all this carbon credit thing, mandating and all, they just can't do it, which is a... Right, never had that legal authority. Never had that legal authority, which was a big blow to um, this climate change thing that nobody's talking about because the media doesn't want to talk about it. And then, you know, the 
They've had two or three or four, Fred, as you know, a Second Amendment, upholding Second Amendment in New York, where they said, um, you can have a concealed weapon. They can't keep you from doing that. They just can't do it. Right. So they're moving in that direction. And I suspect if Florida or Texas left the left the United States next week, these guys would say, you know, <laughs> you're good. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. We're coming all the way back now, you know, yeah. to having to reread uh, the original constitutional amendments and try to really recognize what was the intention. And, you know, obviously there's a language barrier. You know, the word words have changed. You know, words were different in yeah. 1775 and 1776 than they are in 2022. I mean, you know, we define things differently and word usage is somewhat different to the point where, you know, it requires a little bit of digging to really come to understand what the intentions were. You know, imagine even today, if you were going to try to write something for 200 years from now, yeah. that somebody would be able to read and and understand clearly your absolute intention without any equivocation, how clear would your writing have to be? You know, you're going to express this thought, a passionate thought, and yet somehow word it so that it won't be misinterpreted by yeah. somebody who splices one of the words that you chose to use that in today, you know, means something that we understand, but could be easily interpreted in the futures to something different. How hard of a job would that have been? I mean, I have to tip my hat to the founding fathers for how successful they were in being able to, you know, put down in writing and, and they did it. Um, you know, these ideas and thoughts to the point where we've been able to still talk about them 230 years yeah. later. And the people that are against um, their rulings are really kind of losing their minds and talking about that these guys were just a bunch of old, you know, old, old white guys and with slaves, so they, they don't have any authority, you know, this whole thing, and we need to put more uh, Supreme Court justices in there to level things out, and we should just, you know, politicians are out there saying, you know, we're just going to control the, the concealed gun thing with our own laws and just bypass it, so it's going to get interesting. As things move forward, it is. Fred well, you know, one of the one of the brilliant parts about the Constitution is it allowed for change. You know, it afforded itself to be altered and changed. Uh, it required, um, you know, full constitutional amendments. You know, two thirds of the states have to agree to a constitutional convention. Three quarters of the states have to approve it. But you know, the process existed, so that they understood this back in the 1770s with some forethought that, hey, we don't know what the world's going to look like in the future, but what we can do is say, we intend this stuff to be pretty much locked down. However, you know, given that we can't know what might happen coming forward in the future, we're going to leave ourselves the possibility of saying, if this needs to be altered, we'll allow for a process. Mm -hmm. And as long as people follow the process, you know, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. We can debate anything that people want. That's yeah. the whole point. Yeah. You know, if somebody has a legitimate argument for saying that, you know, the Second Amendment shouldn't exist, fine, let them espouse their opinion. I don't have to agree with it, but they're allowed to present it. And if they, you know, can convince three quarters of the population that that's the way things should be, we can fundamentally make a change to the Constitution. Yeah, there's already talk uh, from the Second Amendment advocates that they, some of these red flag laws that they've just passed, uh, that they're going to they're gonna challenge those in the court as well. Yeah, I, I never really thought we would get this far. I, know. I never thought Roe v. Wade would be overturned. I mean, you know, things continue to surprise me as we move forward. But 
it is the world we live in. It is certainly a changing world, very different than it was even 20 years ago. And with the rhetoric out of uh, uh, out of Washington and, and regardless of the administration and the censorship, I think it's really important that we can't allow people to lose their right to bear arms just because of what they think. You know, it's just it's just not right. You know, it's just not right. Well, again, you know, I still can cite that verbatim, you know, and the concept was fairly clear that the idea of the right to bear arms was to for the individuals to be able to protect themselves against tyranny, not only, you know, self-protection for your home, but it was protection against your government being abusive and intrusive. Yeah. So that was the point, you know, a well-regulated militia, you know, the again, the word militia back in 1776 meant every 18-year-old or old 18 to 35-year-old who was not already encumbered within the military. So if you were part of the military already, you know, the regular U.S. Army, you were not in the militia. But if you were an 18 to 35-year-old able-bodied male, and it was men, um, then you were effectively part of what was the broad militia. And, you know, the idea was that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The, the founding fathers were really worried that if we had a disarmed public, there would be nothing to prevent a government from becoming tyrannical. It was the threat that knowing the public had arms that would keep the government from using that, you know, weapons as a method. And instead, it would have to resort to political methods, which they felt at least they could fight, you know, with with conceptual arguments and intellectual conversation. At least it wasn't a guy showing up at your door with a rifle forcing you to do something you don't want against your will. Yeah. yeah. So let no state make gold and silver. Is that you say it's Article one, Section 10? Eight. Eight. So what happened to that one? Boy, we lost that somewhere. Uh, I'm long sorry, long. Article 1, Section 10. Yeah, Article, uh, Article 1, Section, Section 8 10. Is, uh, yeah. gives Congress the right to create and regulate money and the value thereof. Article 10 said no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin. You know, again, this came from a recognition of what had happened to the King of England, who found himself indebted to bankers, even though as sovereign king, he didn't have to answer to anybody. He didn't have to worry about political parties that opposed him to try to get his policies passed. He could do whatever the hell he wanted. He mm-hmm. was the damn king. Mm-hmm. So he was still experienced political pressure because he owed money to bankers. And the pressure that bankers could apply to the king were enough to be able to uh, shape policy to the bankers' discretion. And the founding fathers saw that, and they recognized that flaw. And they recognized that the value of money uh, could be changed if someone were given control over it. So what they wanted to make sure was that if there was a system of monetary policies in the new country, it wouldn't be subject to political change, that it would be free of all that so that they could at least take that off the table. They had enough other things to worry about, you know, the right to bear arms. They're talking about all these other rights that people should have. You know, as you mentioned, these God-given rights, these had to be delineated. They had to be talked about, thought through. What are exactly our rights? What do we believe men are owed from a government? What's the government's role in, in American policy supposed to be? But the one thing they didn't want to have is an influence in the money system. So they clearly delineated gold and silver as a standard, you know, to prevent manipulation. And it, it existed in the United States and survived in the United States from 1792, when the first gold and silver coins, the first money hmm. of the United States was created, 
we maintain this policy of not issuing anything but gold and silver as legal tender right through really uh, the 1970s. And, you know, I remember as a kid how troubling I found that even as a young child, not, not able to really understand what was happening. But the thought that went through my head was why after all of this time, when this had been good enough and had been authored by people who I thought were a hell of a lot smarter than the politicians I saw in the 1970s, you know, how do you compare a John Adams to a, a Richard Nixon? You know, they're, they're not in the same category. They're not in the same league, you know. Not in the same universe. Talking, yeah. Right? So how is it that, you know, somebody like a Richard Nixon is going to tell me now that he thinks that they are currently smarter than these guys were in the 1770s and the way they established the way money should work for the country? Mm. So I didn't understand the nature of the problem, but, I, but what bothered me was that why now? Why is it suddenly not good enough anymore when it's been this standard for so long? And as I started to dig into that year, year after year after year, the more I learned about it, the more I realized that the power that it gives when you get control over a country's currency is enormous. And it's as strong as having a standing army. And it was Thomas Jefferson's, you know, misquoted quote, um, if the American people ever allow banks and institutions mm -hmm. to grow and control the issue of money, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations will deprive the people of all the wealth that their families had, had, had fought for. And, you know, I, I find this so interesting that they were worried more about bankers than armies. They were fe fearful that militarily they would be okay, you know, if Great Britain decided to send troops, they would address that issue. But what they were terrified of was if somebody got control over the monetary system of the country that effectively, no matter how much declaration of independence was made, you're not free if somebody controls your money system. Hmm. So, um, so 1913, when they, then when they asked people to bring in all their, I don't know, I guess they told them to bring in all their gold, 33, 33 that was still... The dollar was still on a gold standard at that point? Sure. Well, but, up to 1933, you still had gold backing every dollar issued. Now, okay. before 33, uh, what changed was that prior to 33, it was redeemability. So the idea was that not only was You're your money backed by gold, hmm. but you could get it at yeah. your discretion. You, as a citizen, could walk into a Federal Reserve Bank with a $100 gold certificate, lay it on the table, demand and get paid five twenty dollar gold coins the equivalent of a hundred dollars face value wow. and that was your right because the concept was that you should never be asked to accept this paper note that was not backed by gold and interchangeable at your discretion it was just supposed to be a simpler method of moving money around instead of it, having to yeah, carry, these carry gold, all these gold coins. coins yeah yeah that's all yeah. now in 33 what changed is that they said we're going to sustain this gold standard, but we're going to remove the right of the people to ask for the actual gold that's supposed to be Back and forth. held in reserve. Yeah. You can't so bring you in gold. You can't redeem it. You can't bring in you gold. You trust us. So you can't, after 33, Fred, you couldn't bring in gold and get so many dollars, and you couldn't bring in dollars and get so much gold. That that ended. Well, the second part, yeah, you couldn't bring in oh. dollars to get gold. So you couldn't present your gold certificates anymore and expect to get paid back in physical gold and silver. <sighs> the government basically said to the public, you're going to have to trust this going forward because 
we're going to keep this gold standard and silver standard, but we're just not going to let you have it. You're just going to have to rely that we're going to keep this stockpile intact because we've run into a bit of a problem. And the problem was, is the Federal Reserve had been created in 1913. Mm -hmm. And in an effort to try to move an economy through uh, what was becoming economic problems, the money panic of 1907, the Fed ended up printing a lot of money, very similarly to what we've done recently. It's, a, it's really uh, not too different. We had a weak economy and we fixed the problem by printing money. But again, back then, there was that redeemability clause. And the problem became that the Fed understood by about the 1920s, it had printed so much more money than it really had in actual gold and silver reserves. If the public figured that out, they were worried about a run on the banks. Sure. Because as soon as that I want confidence my gold, cracked, right. I want my gold. You know, it, it, <laughs> right? You want my gold. I want my gold. Everybody's going to want their gold because if you start thinking that, you know, they're short, they don't actually have enough to meet the supply of paper, mm. everybody would line up immediately. Mm. And now you have a money panic problem that nobody could fix. So the Federal Reserve, understanding this, began to accumulate massive quantities of all of the gold and silver backed notes. And they themselves cashed those in at the Treasury prior to 33 and began to stockpile the gold and silver in their own hands. And wait a minute, wait, sorry, back up a second. Who, 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 the Treasury, the Treasury brought in these, uh, these paper dollars and then, and then, then exchanged those for gold? The Federal Reserve. Oh, the, the Federal Reserve did. Yes, because the Fed knew since 13 it had been printing and printing money. Okay. By the late 1920s, it had overprinted by uh. such a vast amount. We had at the time, uh, they referred to it as the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. the closest thing that we could have as an analogy was what it was like when Reagan was president. They called it the go-go 80s. Hmm. You know, things were booming. It was the days of, you know, the first cell phones and, you know, the yuppies coming out of nowhere and, and all the big guys on Wall Street starting to make really huge amounts of money. The real big separation in the corporation profits from the individuals. Hmm. In the 20s, we had the roaring 20s because the Fed had been printing so much money, the loose money standards, the accommodative nature of money then led to everybody having money available, and it was cheap. And everything was cheap because the money the streets were flooded with money. But that was problematic because the Fed also knew they didn't have a supply of gold and silver equivalent to how much they'd printed. So before that problem hit the public, the Fed itself began to redeem notes for gold and began to strip the U.S. Treasury of its gold reserves. And by 1933, it had taken so much gold out of the Treasury's uh, holdings, the Treasury was left with so little gold and silver, it really faced a significant redeemability problem to where it was forced to change the law to say to the public, uh, from here on in, even though we're going to back this money with gold and silver, we have to stop you from actually taking the gold and silver physically from the oh, Treasury that's vault. That's fascinating. That's new information for me. Why did the Treasury exchange it? Why They could have just said no, couldn't they? They said, no, I'm going to keep our gold. Well, they had no reason not to. Uh, that the law was that these notes represented gold. It, it was an IOU. Hmm. I'm presenting my IOU for payment. You know, you can't default on that. If oh, I see, because it's the Treasury's IOU, deal to, to pay it. Okay, I got it. Absolutely. So they, they just had an obligation. But wasn't the Fed creating notes. these notes on a printing press? Yes. Well, that's not fair. 
<laughs> well, no, it's not. And, and this led to a huge problem. So by 1933, this problem got so bad, Jeez. they literally had to change federal law. Wow. So now they went to the public and said, okay, you know, a lot of people were not redeeming notes in the 1920s for gold or silver because they didn't think they had to. Hmm. They didn't recognize that there was any reason they should. They but it. the Fed recognized it, yeah. and wow. the Fed began to accumulate. Now, here's the, here's the interesting part. When a Federal Reserve note or, or a, a note was issued, gold-backed, and then requested to be redeemed, mm -hmm. you had to destroy the note. Oh, of course, you'd have to, otherwise it's double double duty, yeah. You got it, right? So yeah. that's exactly right. So now in order to prevent it from recirculating, the note gets destroyed. Right. So now envision what's happening here. It's like a two-way vacuum. In one way, you're sucking all the gold out of the treasury. Yes. On the other way, you're destroying all of these paper notes. Okay. Billions upon millions of dollars worth of notes are being destroyed. What you were left with by the late 1920s was no money circulating. The Great Depression. A literal absence of cash, which was a massive depression hmm. for the economy because suddenly nobody had cash. Nobody could get paid. There literally wasn't enough paper, money floating around, hmm. to be able to actually use to conduct commerce because the Fed had been destroying all of these notes as quickly as it could to gather up as fast as it could all the gold and silver that was held in the treasury before it was gone before the public caught on to the problem i, I can remember my mom who used to say whenever she talked about the depression she said nobody had any money nobody nobody had, had any, money. any money she said that many times it doesn't have any right? money strange idea in the modern <laughs> world to try to envision what it would be like that nobody actually had the physical paper yeah, money to be able to conduct commerce with i mean bills were held in esteem i mean if you had a ten dollar note or a twenty dollar note i mean wow that was really something and it carried a huge amount of purchasing power very much in demand but became very difficult to get your hands on and this absence of cash created an economic disaster yeah which was this massive depression. Now you've got people who can't get paid. So the labor market falls apart. People are going out of work left and right. The unemployment rate skyrocketed. About one out of every three or four people in America was out of work. And jobs were hard to come by. You know, the economy was not booming yet. Uh, before we started to gear up for World War II, you know, we were really kind of in a deep, deep depression. Mm. Now. They did recognize that there was a solution to this problem, which was if we could get the public to accept the non-redeemable money system, then we could print our way out of the problem. Ah, because of if we print more money that can't be redeemed, then we don't have to worry about this vacuum problem of money being sucked out of the treasury and no gold being around. So they started printing money after 33 and said to the public, look, Here's the basic idea, and uh, how many people understood this at the time, and we, we could talk yeah, about no that idea. too. Yeah. But basically, they explained to the public, we can solve the Great Depression. All we have to do is you have to allow us to print money, but it okay. won't be redeemable anymore, and you're just going to have to accept that notion that you're going to trust and rely on us to maintain a gold and silver standard you know, kind of in secret, but we promised to we, not overprint. We promised. So they actually the told the people, Fred, that they were going to keep the standard, but you just can't redeem it anymore. And, just the, can't redeem and it the anymore. people went for and it. 
people went. They had no choice. I mean, yeah, you know, right. the depression was a significant problem. It had been going on for almost a decade, and you know, mm. people had suffered horribly. It was one of the worst periods in American history for the average American. And people were willing to do almost anything at that point to solve that problem. Yeah, but you so said a decade. It would just be 29 to 33, right? That's only four years. Yeah, I mean, it took a couple of years after 33 for to things get, to really start to, move, yeah. you know, it was about 36, 37 by the time you kind of got the, back to any the, sense This of is a little geeky, but do you know back then, did they still have to do it, Fred, the same way they do it today with with monetize a dead instrument to bring this money into existence? Do you know back then, or could they just, did they just print it? How did they get it out there? Oh, yeah, well, it was very similar to what they do now. Okay. It was the, you know, purchase of obligations from the Treasury. Mortgages, and the of yeah, whatever. And, yeah. Okay, yeah, same way, same way. Right. So the Federal Reserve had mm -hmm. sort of built that into their charter in 1913. So, you know, the, the advent of the Federal Reserve becoming its its entity in 1913 was one of the most significant fundamental Huge. changes in american history Huge. i mean it changed everything mm. and it sort of went by without a lot of people really understanding it there were a couple of congressmen like lewis mcfadden mm -hmm. um you know who were smart enough to recognize exactly what had happened they saw it as theft they saw it as the bankers gaining control over the currency of a country they saw it as a complete theft of the nation's wealth being shifted into the hands of a group of bankers and stripping the balance of the wealth from the public. And, you know, he stood up against this law half a dozen times to try to keep Congress from passing this Federal Reserve yeah. Act. And, you know, the story goes that there were four or five separate assassination attempts on, on his life. Yeah. And he was finally killed. And, you know, historically, it still stands that it's it's relatively accepted that the reason he was killed was because of his stand against this Federal Reserve Act. So, you know, surreptitiously, we can argue that the bankers were willing to do anything to get this law passed because they understood what a coup this was. They did. I mean, right. you don't have to, you don't need an army to take over a country. <laughs> if you get control of the money system, you own it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So McFadden, was he a, a senator, congressman, congressman, yes. senator? Louis, Louisiana senator, Louis McFadden. Louis, yeah. And uh, Henry Ford and Lindbergh, they were also very vocal about yes. against this. Yeah. yeah, There were a lot who understood what was happening. And mm. again, just like today, there will be a handful of people who have stood up and said, you know, what the Federal Reserve has done in the past two years, this quantitative easing, this printing of money, uh, everything that we've done has been objectionable. And it has been the wrong way for uh, people to go about. But the problem is, is that the general public, when they want a solution to an economic problem, they will accept things that, you know, intellectually, they shouldn't, because <laughs> it's the ease of getting past the problem that they care about. Yeah, that is more wondering. so than, you know, what what problem that might. Uh, it's just like lead to. It's just to like come. in health, uh, Fred. So many humans just want a silver bullet, you know, and not look at deeply what the cause. And oh, yeah. It happens all the time. And they, well, just tell me what to the take. Just tell me what to take. You know, it just doesn't know. work like that. You know. So this brings yeah. us to what you do for a living, is buy and sell gold, silver coins. And a lot of the coins that people invest in, these St. Gaudens $20 gold pieces, th that was all tied in with the, with the Warring Twenties, right? Talk yes. about, that's so, so cool. Talk about how these things came into existence. I mean, how you ended up with them 200 years later. 
100 years. You later. know, it's, it's amazing. So in 1933, uh, not only do we remove this standard against the dollar and the redeemability clause, uh-huh. but we also tell the general public that the treasury is so depleted of gold reserves that what we need is the public to take any private gold it owns and to give it to the U.S. government, hmm. for which the government would give you back in exchange paper notes, equivalent in face value to whatever your gold coins said they were. So if you had a $20 gold coin, we'd give you 20 bucks. You have a $10 gold coin, we'll give you $10 in paper. Hmm. And they asked the public to turn over bars of gold, any kind of silver coins that they had, gold coins, anything that they would turn in, um, because the treasury had been so significantly depleted of its gold reserves, in order to at least move forward to print more money hmm. with the illusion that there was some standard, there had to be at least some gold in reserve. So they actually asked the public that accepted this to please turn over your private gold and you are not now as an American citizen going to be legally allowed to store gold personally. You can't have it anymore. But at so that time it didn't include it didn't include what you sell, numismatics, right? It was right. No, it, it excluded any coins that had value more than, you know, their face value. Wow. So any coins that had any kind of, you know, rarity to them or any kind of mint condition quality or anything that was more valuable than just melt was accepted from this ruling. Hmm. That's exempted. And people did it, huh? And do you know yeah, what they were? People didn't know. Do you know the amount of dollars they were given per ounce for the for the gold? Uh, yeah, bars? it was it was about twenty dollars. About twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would go up to maybe twenty six, twenty seven. I mean, the government's official price of gold, even by the late nineteen thirties, was still about thirty two dollars and fifty cents an ounce for gold, and mm-hmm. that's you know pretty much how they redeemed it. Um, you know, so interestingly, now the the public is being asked to you know turn over your private gold if you have a stash pile of it accept these paper notes in exchange, believe us that we're going to keep a gold standard against it, but please don't come and ask for it because we're not giving it to you. <laughs> wow. Man. There's a screenplay there, isn't there? If you really knew yeah, what, what the people... Yeah, job that would have yeah, been, right? boy, what the people were thinking and they resisted. Are there any books about that well, that, that exact time that really tell us what was oh, going sure. on? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot. A lot has been written about it. Uh-huh. Um you know, again, I, I find it really interesting because, you know, at that point, Roosevelt basically had to sell this to the public. Yeah. You know, so the 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 pitch, if you will, was that we can solve the Great Recession, you know, the depression that we've been in for the past years. And, and everybody wants that. We want the country to move forward again. So here's what we're going to do. Right. We're going to do A, B, C, and D. And if you agree to this, well, then we're good to go. Okay. So, we kind of skipped yeah, over it. Uh, but tell me how these $20 gold pieces, which is uh, quite a bit of what you sell at U.S. Coin Capital, how they uh, survived all this time. Weren't they sent over to Europe or something that I recall? Well, a lot of people, yeah, became concerned about how far this confiscation of gold from the public would go. Uh-huh. You know, they didn't know. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, well, when they, when we talk about confiscation, they envision somebody knocking on your door saying, hey, Patrick, you got any gold? Right. Turn it over. That's not how it worked. All they did is they wrote a law that outlawed your ownership. So they made it an illegal commodity like oh. drugs. Oh. You know, so they're not saying that, you know, we're not going to come search your house, but you cannot trade legally in this. You know, you can't bring a pound of cocaine to get money at a bank 
and exchange it. It's not a legal currency item. So the gold was outlawed. Now, a lot of people who didn't quite understand the, the hair that was being split uh, were worried about how many of the gold coins and what kind of gold coins had to be turned in. And it did turn out there was an exception made for any coins of value, uh, any rare value. But a lot of people were worried. And what they did is gathered up large quantities of gold coins and shipped them out to Europe. Hmm. And they ended up being stored in the banks of, of Europe all over the, the world for decades um, because people were terrified that there might be that knock on the door. You know, that they might go that far and mm. say, you know, like, we're coming for your guns, we're coming for your gold, <laughs> you know, we're going to come search your home. And if we find an ounce of gold, we're taking it. So people that had wealth, and there were a lot of people that had wealth, even during the Great Depression, much of this money that existed in the form of physical gold coins got shipped to Europe. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars were sent to European central banks. Wow. And, and these are the $20 there, gold pieces that you often sell, right? Yes. A lot of them came back in the 1970s once Richard Nixon reversed the process of the gold standard. They came back. By, you know, basically he said in 71 that we're going we're gonna to pretend, you know, that, that people are going to accept a U.S. dollar even though from here forward we are declaring we're not even going to pretend anymore to keep that gold standard <laughs> against it or the silver standard. Yeah. We're just going to forget we're, we're even trying to do that, that anymore. Wow. You know, from 33 to 71, they kept up the pretense. And the pretense was, we have a supply of gold and silver against all the money that's in print, and there's nothing to worry about. You Amazing. know, but, but what had really been happening was by, by the end of World War II, they were down to about an 80% reserve. And by, by the 1950s, it was down to about 60%. By the 1960s, it was down to about 40%. They were losing ground very quickly because they were printing more and more money, ever increasingly at the faster and faster pace, and certainly did not have a supply of gold equal to what they were doing by the 70s. It had gotten so out of control, you know, that Nixon looked at the gap between how much paper had been printed. And theoretically, if that had to be redeemed for gold and silver, there was such a shortage of what the government had maintained in its reserves that he just decided there was no point in even the pretense anymore. But this is what infuriated the Europeans. Because after World War II, we forced European countries to hold the United States dollar. At the end of World War II, at the Bretton Woods Convention, we established the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency and forced foreign countries to stockpile U.S. dollars in their central banks. Because we required that U.S. dollars be used to buy certain commodities like oil, oil. or gold. Yeah. And if you were a world marketer um, and you wanted to buy oil, you had to do it in U.S. dollars. So if you were Italy, you know, you have your Italian lira, but you weren't legally allowed to buy oil with it. You had to first convert your lira into U.S. dollars, then you used your U.S. dollars to buy your oil. And that meant a tremendous sustained demand for the U.S. currency. But it also forced European countries and central banks to stockpile dollars which they didn't mind doing because they were backed by gold and silver. Sure, we can always get our gold for it. Yeah. Right, so they felt that the dollar was a stable currency. Well, in 71, Nixon makes this broad announcement no and more. tells the world, yeah, thanks for holding all those dollars, and as of today, they're no longer backed by gold or silver. Well, the European bankers were like, well, wait a minute. Why do we want to hold this currency if you guys can't even give us a promise 
that you're going to have a standard against it with any form of physical gold and silver. So a lot of the countries in Europe decided to stop stockpiling dollars. Even though they still needed to keep some, they began to reduce their reserves and started to push dollars back to the U.S. And the money started flowing into America at an increasing rapid pace coming from one foreign country after another, as they all found out about what Nixon had just said. Well, America finally finds itself flooded with paper. I mean, the amounts of money pouring into America were so vast, the dollar began to absolutely get so inflated that we began to experience the greatest inflation existent in existence until recently. Until today. Uh, that we yeah. never yeah, that was you know, the, the, the Jimmy Carter era, and they start raising interest rates like uh, they're doing today. And then in 1981, gold what what went from 35 to 850, and then yep. interest rates were 15 percent, folks. If you were going to buy a home, 1981, 15 percent mortgage. And this is similar to what's going on today. But we'll talk it about is, that. It's very similar. Yeah, let's take this and, phone call, and then and we'll continue. Great conversation, Fred. Good morning. Who's this? And this is Sean and Sharon with uh, goats, geese, gold. Gold, geese, no, goats, and goats, and geese, and go- <laughs> How you doing, Sean? What's up? Uh, thank you, Fred. Uh, you you are the one of the best historians, just like uh, good old Andrew Goss. And I want your wow. honest opinion here. With uh, do you think anything will ever change? I mean, because I was born in 1971, and maybe that's why I love history and I love money <laughs> making. It's so easy, and it, it's just, do you think anything will ever change until people understand that we do not have a government, we have a corporation, and then when you vote in the polls, you're voting for Microsoft's president, you're voting for Boeing's president, you're not a that we're not voting for a president of the United States. We're not voting for officers of a government. We're voting for officers of a corporation. Do you think anything will change until everybody understands that? Uh, short answer, no. I don't think anything's going to change. I, I think it was, you know, I, I don't remember the first time I heard it, but I know, you know, like George Carlin used to have a, yeah. a running line Great. about it. And yeah. as a humorist, he was dead on. He said, you know, we have the illusion of, of voting yeah. for people to give us the illusion that we actually have representation, that we have, you know, that we're actually voting for somebody. We're not. You know, we're owned as a country by right. those corporations and the corporate entities. So, you know, I've done this research going back to the 1790s when Alexander Hamilton was first promoting the idea that we should have a central bank uh, established immediately with our new country. And, you know, Adams and Jefferson were opposed to the idea because they feared what that meant. So here we are now with exactly what those guys were worried about, which is corporations own America. And I think we have the illusion of choice by going through the voting process. It, it is, you know, I've been around long enough. I've been in this business now for 35, 36 years or so. No matter who is in power, Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't seem that anything changes. You know, the, the inevitable game continues behind the scenes. And I think, you know, you've hit upon something that's really important until the people understand the nature of what actually is happening within the country, nothing will change. But, you know, as we said at the very beginning of the program, 
in 2022, if we're at a point where you can stop people at, on a beach and say, why are we celebrating July 4th? I mean, you can't get an answer out of people. I have very little faith that the public is going to catch on and, and get behind, you know, making any fundamental change. I think we're going to be subject to the way things are for as far as I can see. Really? So, Fred, then I uh, probably just have to, the whole thing implode for change or... As Andy used to say, they'll just keep going until they run out of zeros? Yeah, I think so. And, right. and, you know, it's exactly why I've stayed in this business as long as I have, because it's come to me, to, to, uh, it's become an understanding to me personally that the best shot that the public has, uh, if, first of all, at least to get the fundamental grasp and understanding of the nature of what money is. You know, what is a dollar? Why is it that paper money changes in value? And my firm belief that the only fighting chance people have is to recognize the flaw in the way we use paper money in America and that to denominate personal wealth in that gold and silver is the key to retaining real value in your money over time. Because the gold and silver, that $20 gold coin from the 1920s, it still has the pur purchasing power it had, you know, 100 years ago. You know, show me a paper note that can retain its purchasing power over a five-year period. In any country, hmm. you can't because they all are subject to change. And this is why I so firmly believe that, you know, if people want to give themselves a fighting chance, they need to denominate a portion of their wealth in real, tangible money, what really constitutes legitimate currency. And a paper note floated without anything backing it is definitely not money. It's an IOU. It's a representation of debt. You know, and when we look at the debt currently, so the Fed is now on its policy of raising interest rates to fight off the inflation problem that it's created, although it's, it stands surprised by the rate of inflation. The Federal Reserve constantly is saying how shocked they are by how vast the inflation rate has been in America. They didn't see it coming. You know, most people were saying they should have addressed this years ago. They waited too long. Every time rates go up a half a percent. It adds $146 billion That's to the crazy. national debt. Yeah, the, the national, well, no, the interest on the national debt, right? $146 billion is added by every half a point increase. Interest, interest on the debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, is that you know, crazy? imagine that. Yeah. And they're going right? to so probably gonna raise, raise 50, point, billion, two points, two they're, points. they're probably going to raise 50 basis points today. That means uh, the Treasury is going to have another $150 billion a year in interest. Uh, yeah, twice that. Yeah. So, so I'm only 51, and everybody—I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people are talking about this jubilee thing, and it, it's just just the rhetoric going out there and everything. You know, a, a monetary jubilee. Oh, you mean the, the, the Great Reset thing, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? What? what they're just gonna, you know, like they could do. I mean, I've I've said for years. Well, yeah, just don't renew the charter for the Federal Reserve. You know, if you don't renew Boeing's well, charter, it's, it's a perpetual Boeing's charter, Sean. It's a it's a perpetual. They don't renew that thing. Yeah, unfortunately, they don't. But that's a brilliant idea. In other words, we don't need the Federal Reserve no, system. The Treasury Department could effectively do all of the operations that the Federal Reserve currently does. It could do all the open market committee operations. It could handle the currency exchanges between nations. It can handle the financing of government-issued debt. It can handle the Treasury Department's issue of bonds. 
The tree could do all of it without that intervention of a private group of bankers. But we do have this Federal Reserve system in, in place. And unless Congress decides to shut it down, then it will sustain itself going indefinitely. And, you know, I, I know it sounds a little conspiratorial and I try to avoid that stuff. But it's <laughs> a little hard not to see some of this. I don't believe that the bankers who waited this long to get to this position and have been fighting this battle literally since 1792 are at any time going to simply say, yeah, we'll give that power yeah, back. Yeah, to the that's right. Yeah. Not going to happen. Away, not happening. You know, not happening. It would be like a king seceding his power to the public and yeah. saying, you know, yeah, I know I'm, I'm the sovereign king. I can do whatever I want. But you know what? I'm going to turn all my power over to the people because I'm magnanimous and, and I want to be that way. And, and I just don't see that happening. So I think we're going to be fighting this problem a long time. And, and the issue now is that every, every new political power that comes into place has got to face this reality. So they then have to create their own, you know, spin, if you will, for how they plan to address an unsolvable problem. How do you solve a debt of, you know, what the government says is $32 trillion, which I think you, Patrick, and I believe is a hell of a lot more oh, than that. Yes, sir. But, yes, sir. Right? So if, even at their argued number, how do you solve a problem that vast if the economy can't grow its way out of the problem? You know, mm -hmm. the economy can't grow enough unless you're talking about 30 years out to absorb that kind of debt. The only solution to it is to print more money. And if you print more money, well, then you're simply stripping the wealth of the public. So the only question is, how fast do you do that? How fast do you get away with it? You know, if you do it too quickly, people start to see inflationary pressures. Look what's happening now. You know, <laughs> even six or eight months ago, inflation as a word was hardly being spoken about. Nobody was discussing it. It wasn't really coming up in conversations. It wasn't on the financial news frequently. Now it's like forefront. I'm even hearing commercials for um, political party people that are saying, you know, vote for me and I'll help fight back the inflation problem. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's something they never they never use that as a tool to try to get votes. But they know that people recognize inflation now because anecdotally, you can't ignore the results of what we've done the past few years because it's starting to show up at such a ridiculously high note that it's impossible to not see it. I mean, it, unless you haven't gone shopping in the past three months or try to buy anything in the past three months, you know, you understand prices are increasing. And why is that happening? Well, because we printed 40% more money than we had two years ago. That's crazy. 40% more money in the, in the money in, in two years. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's a total yeah. of all wow. the money that existed up to two years ago. That's crazy. We've added 40% more to that massive volume of money in a two-year stretch. We've never done that before in the United States. We've never expanded the money supply that, that dramatic in such a short period of time. So I don't see any way that we get out of this without <laughs> printing the crap out of money. So I'm a firm believer that you know people should be stash piling twenty dollar gold coins and i have put together a little something okay uh, uh yeah we'll get to that in a second he's got a little okay. got a little uh so is that is that it, it for you sean thanks for uh, coming in you've uh, brought up some well, interesting I, I ideas wanted, i wanted to fred to uh, elaborate on the corporate because my my because you can go on to dmb and you can find america you can find the state of washington you can find the state of california 
that they're all corporations. That's what I was going to. Not, I mean, I we we all know that. Oh, you know, you're talking about the actual structure of the United States the as actual, a corporation. The actual, yeah. Yes, until people understand that. I mean, this is why I don't have a concealed weapons permit because I don't need to go get a permit to to carry a gun. You know, I understand. I, I, yeah, that's a little geeky know. for for us right now. I, I, you know, I think, yeah. I, you know, I think I that, I you know, exactly what I'm saying. What getting no, I know. There is this, the corporate entity of the United States of America. That's right. As a corporation, as an entity, it has been established as an entity in a corporate sense, and it is yeah. under that pretense that they can definitely do things that you couldn't do if you simply looked at America as a. United States of America, That's right. group of That's states right. that are together as a nation. There is the corporate entity, and it's what allows for a lot of these federal laws uh, to persist that seem to conflict with the Constitution. But in essence, legally, they don't because they refer to the corporate entity. So who then becomes subject to the corporate entity laws? It's everybody who agrees to play in the corporate entity game. Mm-hmm. You have a social right. security number, you know, yeah. things of that nature that makes you a subject of that corporate entity. So uh, you're on the right track there. Yeah. Andy used to talk about oh. it, like the uh, the organic government and we were on kind of on the plastic. Right. And we have a birth certificate and driver's license and, uh, you know, social security number. And we take out loans. We use dollars and you're kind of in the game. You're in. Right. Right. You're yeah, participating every yeah, if people understand every bylaw that they call laws of every state, city, county, and fed, those are just bylaws of a corporation. That's, That's right. it. That's it. That's yeah. it. They're just bylaws. The problem is it's, very, it's really difficult to operate in America without participating in the game. They've made it extremely difficult. I mean, I know people who've you know, gone off the grid, <laughs> not so much in the in the electrical world, but try to go off the financial grid. And some people have had some success with it, but it requires an awful lot of effort. You know, I know people who've grown up without ever having a social security number or, you know, who've rescinded their social security number, try to operate, you know, in America without one or without those obligatory uh, systems that that kind of make you a participant, whether you like it or not, it can be done, but it, it, it's a lot. Well, I think Sean is a good example. He studied this for a long time, and he's figured out ways how to not be in the system as much as us. But That's great. he spends a lot That's of time great. with it, and he's very smart with I, it. And we don't recommend hey, it I for do. people unless unless you know what you're doing. Well, I I do, and I teach people, and it's very simple. Just use the system. They created the laws. I'm going to say, if you're paying a dollar more than zero with IRS taxes, you're crazy. You know, the, the IRS rules were made for you to pay zero. Okay, yeah, let's not go there right now, Sean. Okay, brother. Thanks Thanks for calling. <laughs> All right, have a okay, good day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we could spend we could spend a couple hours on that for sure. Oh, I mean, you can spend you can spend a, a week. Um, but, you know, the idea that um, it's not going to end until you get rid of the Fed. And the, yes. my, my first screenplay that I wrote just won uh, a gold winner. Wow. Indi- International Independent Film Awards. Oh, Another, good for you. Yeah. The Real World of Money, Patrick J. Timpone. And it's about a president who uh, takes over the Federal Reserve 
by force. Okay. And that his father made a secret deal with the people to put him in office that he didn't tell them. And the people that put him in office are the ones that own the Federal Reserve, so they're not happy. Yeah, we're a gold winner there. What do you think? Well, that would be a great start, right? So if we eliminate the Fed or put the Fed under the auspices of the U.S. Treasury Department and eliminate the private nature of it and put it under control of the public, effectively what would change is the ability to, um, you know, like like Sean was saying, not renew the Fed's charter. We can't do that. Hmm. But if the Fed was under the Treasury Department, even though that makes them more politicized, at least if they did a crappy job, you could vote them out. <laughs> now, when the founding fathers set up the first bank of the United States, they granted it a 20-year charter for that yeah, reason. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, 20 because years. They wanted the public to have a review process. So by 1812, the public was able to sit back and say, okay, how have they done? And should we revisit giving them their charter back? And Andrew Jackson, for example, looked at the bank charter and refused to renew it because he thought they were simply ripping off the public, even back then, hmm. and would not sign the damn charter. And his treasury secretary refused to go along. So he had to fire him. And then he put another secretary of treasury in place, and he had to fire that guy and third guy. And four, it took five different guys before wow. he finally got around to it. <laughs> but after, after Jackson shut down that second central bank, the United States flourished as a nation between the late 1830s and 1860s before the Civil War. We had the greatest growth spurt in American history because the money system wasn't being controlled anymore. Unfortunately, the Civil War changed all that because Lincoln found himself in, in need of raising revenue and, and was offered financing by bankers to finance the Civil War. Of course, they wanted about 16% interest, which at those days was running three or four percent, hmm. and Lincoln refused. So he offered the uh, instead to have the Treasury Department print these United States backed notes, these first greenbacks of the United States. Yeah. The first time we actually had a federal paper money note came out of the Lincoln administration. But you know, so this battle has been going on for a very long time, and subsequent presidents who tried to fight back against it. Uh, have all met interesting fates. Interesting fates. Thank you for uh, one of the aspects of Andy's four presidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the aspects of the screenplay, which Andrew Goss taught me years ago, was in the Treasury, is they create United States notes, and people trade in their Federal Reserve notes for United States notes, one to one, sure. and then the Treasury takes United Federal Reserve notes, and guess what? Pays off Destroys all. Them. No, no, pays off the debt. Well, and then eventually, you know, it doesn't use them anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it takes a while. Right. And it's it's a brilliant idea that Andrew talked about. No reason about. that we cannot do that. You could do I it. I mean, there's you nothing to prevent the U.S. It. Treasury Department from taking over all of the operations yeah. of the Fed, but it would take Congress deciding to shut down the Federal Reserve because it was Congress that authorized the Federal Reserve's creation. Only Congress can unwind that. And if you listen to the congressman when, you know, Chairman Powell, the Federal Reserve, goes before them and testifies, you know, 80% of them are just kissing his ass. You know, oh, Mr. Powell, we're so thankful that you're doing such a great job and you're so wonderful and what would we do without you? Uh, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of the congressmen ask any kind of pointed questions. Yeah. I miss the days when Ron Paul was much more active because, you know, it was in the days of Alan Greenspan as Fed chairman and 
that exactly what would happen. You know, Greenspan would testify and, you know, nine guys in a row on Congress would ask him some stupid, innocuous question. And then it became Ron Paul's turn. And you could just see Greenspan, his whole demeanor would change. He'd be like, oh, crap, here we go. Hmm. And Ron Paul would just pepper him and pepper him with tough question after tough question and make him admit to things he did not want to have to admit to and push the point publicly that, you know, that the Fed was just absolutely gaming the system. You know, nowadays, we really don't have a Ron Paul, per se, who's out in the forefront, you know, doing that. And I listened to very carefully what the congressman asked of, you know, Treasury Secretary Yellen, when they ask, you know, Chairman Powell, whenever he testifies, and it's pretty weak. It's very weak. I don't have a lot of faith. Fred Dushevsky and the real world of money. Um, I want to do, why don't you tell folks about your little special for this month, yeah. and then we'll we'll spend another maybe 10 or 15 minutes and just wrap up some of the local things, because we are deep in history, which I really appreciate. It was great. So you got a special deal from your... I have two. I have a gold special and a silver special. All right. Okay, so the gold is going to be comprised of a $20 St. Gaudens, which is that gold coin we were discussing. Uh-huh. First of these was issued in 1907. The last issued in 33, but that last date doesn't exist. So effectively, you'll find the dates run generally between 1907 and 1932. A mint state 65 example is not only mint condition, but on a 1 to 70 scale has achieved 65 of 70 points. It has a couple of minor surface scratches, very light contact marks. Other than that, it looks like it was minted yesterday. Hmm. These have been certified authentic graded in this specific condition by a third-party agency called ngc the numismatic guarantee corp it is sealed in their tamper-proof holder as a mint state 65 along with that 20 dollar gold coin are two of the indian head 10 dollar gold coins they were struck in that same period and they are in mint state 62 together for the three coins, the two $10 Indians in Mint State 62, the one large $20 in Mint State 65, it's $5,850 for the gold package. 50, three man. mint condition gold coins, 5850 And then for those interested in silver, uh, I have bags of dimes. So these are hmm. pre-1965. They're just loose, raw dimes. They're not graded or certified. They're just changed, but they happen to be minted. Uh, 1964 and earlier when they were literally made of silver a thousand dimes wow and with that 10 ms65 graded silver dollars that were minted between 1878 and 1921 they're known as morgan silver dollars simply named for the uh, artist george t morgan um, the designer of the coin so they're morgan silver dollars 10 of those in ms65 grade plus a thousand circulated silver dimes and that package is forty eight hundred fifty dollars four thousand eight fifty four thousand eight fifty great way for people to have oh. a little bit of their wealth in the physical silver for exchangeable purposes very easy to liquidate you know you could s- literally sell a single dime at a time they're they're hmm. about two dollars and change per dime and you have the mint condition silver dollars that are roughly 100 years old that are nearly pristine just a great way for people to invest in silver. Oh, that's fun. And of course, you can combine the two packages for those that have a little more money to spend or any quantity of them, of course, together, uh, any way people want to put that together. But I thought this would be a great way to take advantage of the current 
uh, prices for gold and silver, which right now are ridiculously low. They're on sale, right? Really on sale. They yeah. are the they are the inverse of the U.S. dollar, and the dollar has been super strong oh, lately. Man. It's crazy. Even with all the problems we just discussed, because Europe and Asia are going through so much more economic trouble than we are. They are bailing from those currencies. The U.S. dollar actually got to almost parity with the euro yesterday. I know. Highest it's been against the euro in 20 years. And the euro is really and going the through dollar it. Index, yeah. and the euro index. You know, we had talked about it a couple months ago when it was like 93 on the dollar index. What is it And today? I started to suggest how it's strong that one, looked at 93, 104, 105, 106 right now. 107. 107 right now. 107. Okay. Is that That's the highest it's ever been? Ever? Uh, I don't know if I don't not know. ever, but it's definitely the highest in the last couple of decades. Oh, yeah. So so explain to us like we're a young child. By the way, if you'd like to get the, any one of these packages or something else, talk to Fred and his team about your particular situation. 800-878-2646. 800-878-2646. I, I wanted to ask one thing. Oh, yeah. How much silver is in one of those dimes? You know? uh, let's see, they're about a tenth of an ounce in size. Okay, about a tenth, and ninety percent silver. So you can do the math there. I'm sorry. And the silver dollars are a full ounce size, and they have in them uh, 0.77 ounces of pure silver. But again, all U.S. coins were also made with an additional uh, small amount of trace metals to make them a little bit more firm. No. But I, I do want to just go back to one little thing about the dollar. Yeah. The, the U.S. dollar, that index, is a relative number. It's just sort of arbitrary, but it's used to try to reflect the relative value of the strength of the dollar against foreign currencies. And as the dollar gets weaker, that number drops. And, you know, below 90, it's a little bit weak. In the low 90s or mid-90s, it's pretty strong. You know, again, when it hit 93 or 94 five or six months ago, that was the strongest it had been in quite some time. And we were beginning to experience, you know, a strengthening dollar on the back of foreign currencies, again, pouring into the U.S. At 105, 106, 107, where it is today, um, that is a massively strong U.S. dollar. It will not last at these levels for long. But while it does, it forces down the price of gold and silver. And oil. And oil because too, right? They are inversely, inversely related. Hmm. So as the dollar strengthens, it creates a buying opportunity for investors. They should take advantage of these whenever they occur. Because the idea that the dollar will remain at these high, high levels is extremely unlikely. It can't last there for long. So as it begins to drift back down, gold and silver will again climb back up. So I think this is a great buying opportunity people should take advantage of. So... Um how is it possible that the dollar is that strong when there's so many out there swimming around and they created so many, 40% more than we had two yes. years ago? Why is that? It's a little, it's a little counterintuitive, yeah, but like, as bad as things are in the U.S., if you were not in the United States and you were in Europe or you were in Asia, it's even worse. It's worse. And because it's so much worse there... Uh. Their money is pouring into the U.S. because we look better than they do. Even though we look terrible internally, we're still better than Europe and we're still better than Asia. So because of that, a lot of money is pouring into the United States. I see. Driving the dollar higher. Which is why the, the euro dollar thing is, is, is almost parity. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. European currency is weakening. 
dollars strengthening. Mm-hmm. So if you're traveling, you know, good time to go to Europe because your dollar will buy a lot more. Yeah, yeah. But again, that also creates higher prices for American goods. So there is a, a, a problem that it creates. It's part of the reason some of these countries reduce the value of their currency because it makes their exports cheaper, sure. which would allow us to buy more of them. And that's good for them because it means we're big consumers absorbing a lot more of their products. Some countries want to get off the dollar peg, but I don't yeah, I don't understand how that's even possible. I mean, say if you're in, I don't know, Tunisia or something like that, you have to put a, don't you have to put a dollar amount next to it so you know the relative value of it? Are you always on well, the, compared to the dollar? You know, how many people are going to be willing to store Tunisian currency as a long-term basis of, you know, holding value? Uh, too many questionable issues there, you know. There are many foreign currencies that exist that are outside of Bretton Woods that effectively could could sustain themselves without having to support the U.S. dollar. But it means somebody else would have to want their currency. And that's problematic because, again, even though the U.S. looks internally, you know, problematic, we still look a lot better than most European countries do and most Asian countries do. So Hmm. the U.S. dollar is well accepted. You know, there, uh, there isn't a country on earth that won't take U.S. dollars in form of payment, but there are a lot of countries that won't take Tunisian currency. Yeah. What does that tell you, though, about the whole global look at the monetary system? It's in pretty screwed up if, they're, if we're the it best, if, mean, if we're the best guys out there. Right? <laughs> yeah, if we're the best guys. It's as seriously flawed as it is in the, in the United States. Wow. This game is not only being perpetrated domestically, it is a worldwide game. All of the major countries in the world have a central bank, quite similar to the Federal Reserve. So all of them are operating under the same concept, which is print unbacked money. Mm-hmm. And most of them have done such a horrible job of trying to sustain the value of their own currency that it's forcing people there, you know, governments, institutional buyers, corporations and individuals to look for an alternative. And, you oh. know, I've use the analogy of the U.S. dollar being the cleanest, dirty shirt in the laundry, but that's pretty much the best pretty way to express it. it. Jap- Japan? As we are. Right? Japan? Uh, oh. No, huge. Yeah. Negative rates, you know. Yeah. So, um, today, the Fed is going to raise interest rates again, right? And so yep. people, the only question is either 50 or 75 basis basis points, which is a lot, right? That's like a half a point or three quarters of a point, right? Yeah. Well, look what it's done to the mortgage market. So in the past couple months, these Fed raises have changed an average mortgage payment on an, on an average home in America by about four to $600 a month. That's great. Yeah. So already. So, I mean, it's beginning to have an impact. And remember, every half a point increase is another $146 billion of debt that we now have to incorporate which just perpetrates the length of which this game is going to continue. So I don't see an end in sight anytime soon. The Fed is, has suggested it's going to try to reduce its balance sheet, $45 billion a month. And, you know, I thought about that. I said, okay, so 10 months later, that's, you know, $450 billion that they have reduced it. But they're going to try to get it back to where it was pre-COVID, which is four and a half trillion. And it's ten now, right? That means they're going to have to do this for ten years, yeah, just to get back to where we were two years ago. So for the next ten years, the Fed is suggesting it's going to try to be selling off its assets. 
what uh, are they speculating that there won't be another economic problem at all in the next 10 years <laughs> i mean that's that's a hell of a stand to take it's not 10 it's 8.9 8.9 today this morning yeah. okay yeah so uh, again you're going to try to reduce that by four and a half trillion dollars that's going to take 10 years at 45 billion dollars a month that doesn't work the math doesn't add up they can't do it short term it'll take them a decade so I, I have a real problem with the <laughs> idea that the Fed is going to be able to raise rates enough, as they're going to do today, and keep going on with rate hikes, fight off inflation, and yet not raise rates too much to spin tail the economy into a deep recession that lowering rates would be the only way to get out of. So do you think that's where we're going, to a deep recession? Yep. Yeah. I think the odds are getting bigger and bigger all the time. And if not... It's going to be an extremely choppy economy. I did say at least six months ago that as soon as rates started going up, the stock market was going to have a real problem. It was going to begin to experience real trouble because the stock market had been growing for two years on the zero interest rate money. Right. Once that disappeared, it changed everything in the stock market. And look at the volatility index in the stock market. Huge. I've never seen it this high, yeah. ever. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. And just from people fearing inflation, that's the word, uh, uh, they got the price of oil down, I think, to this morning. It's, uh, Cracked 100. Oh, yeah. it's uh, uh, WTI is 96. So I guess yep, Brent is probably 90, what, 98, 99, Brent. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. So we'll experience a lot of these you know, shifts going forward. But the one thing you can count on is that we will print more and more money going forward to, because right? it's the only solution available well, that minute. makes any sense. Can you raise interest rates and then print or quantitative easing? Can you? Well, yeah, you can still print money no matter whether you're raising interest <laughs> rates or not. I mean, they still have to because the government is deficit spending. So we, there's yeah. still a gap that yeah. has to be made up, right? Yeah. So the government can't operate on its income. It has to have money. It has to borrow money somehow. So it's going to continue to sell treasury debt. And I think interest on the debt is around $500 billion. I haven't checked. I think four or $500 billion. And as rates go up, that's going to go up 100 or so a year, correct? Or every 50 basis points. $150 billion, did you say? $146 billion, yeah. Wow. wow. Every half a point increase. Wow. Yeah, so this isn't cheap. No. I mean, you know, raising rates comes at a cost. Just like solving an economic problem by printing money, it's a short-term solution, but it comes at a cost. And the cost is, is it's the public that bears the brunt of it. Yeah, we get it you in know, the, the shorts every time. There. You don't hear the government crying about inflation, right? You don't hear the government complaining that they're paying more for goods and services or that government employees are asking for more money. The go I haven't heard one peep out of the government complaining about an inflationary problem, except that they're worried about the perception of the public because consumer spending drives the economy. And if you begin to fear inflation, you may curtail your spending. Mm -hmm. That's not good. You know, we don't want to have a slowing economic environment while we're printing massive amounts of money because then you get stagflation, which is about the worst situation you could have. Yeah, no no that real GDP growth. And just, growth. No growth. Is, that what happened? Just is that what happened during Jimmy Carter in the 70s? Yep. Hmm. And that's a problem for the Fed because the way to resolve an economic stall is lowering interest rates. But they're but raising them. They're telling us, <laughs> but they have to raise rates because they have to fight off inflation. So how do you do both at the same time? Like, how do you step on the gas pedal and the brake on your car at the same time? Right. 
But Fred, is, is it this whole raising interest rates to control inflation? Is just just is this just more talk talk? So people think the government or the, they they think the Fed is the government. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, no, it has an impact. I mean, raising rates slows the economy down. There's no question about it. You can choke an economy by making money too expensive. So yeah, but you're going to see it. It would take a while, right? Yeah, it, you know, there's going to be a balance point. And this is the game that we're playing now. So the game has shifted from, you know, there's no inflation. Mm. Now it's a, who caused the inflation? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a blame game. Russia and, and the oil companies or whatever. Yeah, they can blame whoever they want. Of course, they want to ignore the reality. They printed the crap out of money. Uh, who are we going to blame for the inflation? Okay, well, how about the people that printed all the money? You know, Elon, let's deal with Elon Musk source. is is uh, tweeting about it. He, he's he's on it. He talks about it. What did he say? I haven't oh, seen he it. He talks about the Fed and the reason we have inflation is because the Fed created okay. too much money. Good for Elon. You know? Yeah, it's it's pretty simple if you understand basic <laughs> economics. I mean, I mean, Milton Friedman's been dead for what twenty five years, but uh, you know, as a monetarist, you know, he was one of the first ones to just kind of take the stand and say, look. You know, we can get as complicated as we want. The simple reality is, is the value of a dollar is based on how much of it there is. And if you expand the amount of money in an economy faster than the economy is growing, well, then you're diluting the value of the money. I, I don't I don't care about what else you try to do. Fred, when, when oil goes from like 120, which it has in the last, I don't know, two months to 95 or so, does that have any bearing on lowering gas prices? Eventually, yes, uh, because the gas pumps are, you know, the gas station dealers who don't get to set their own prices effectively. They really don't. They're subject to what the costs are. The cost changes based upon what a gallon of, you know, barrel of oil costs. And as that cost changes, uh, it filters its way down to the local gas station who then is able to buy gas cheaper. Uh And you should see prices begin to drift back down. So, yes, it will have an impact. And again, this is. You know, if you are in a political position and I say to you, Patrick, you, you have all the authority to choose what you want to do. Uh, the one thing you can't do is stop us from printing money. So forget that. That's off the table. But if you could somehow lower the price of oil, you know, consumers will feel better because at least, you know, yeah. instead of $120 to fill up their SUV, it'll only be back to $90 again. Here's an email for you before you go from Matthew. Can Fred give us a short summary of whatever happened last year when the Reddit Raiders tried to make a run on silver. Hmm. That was interesting. Um, so, yeah, the Reddit Raiders, they, first of all, gathered up all of their internet resources and basically did a social media push on a handful of stocks and also on the silver market. Hmm. And they spread around the story that there was a you know issue of silver shortages and suggested that people jump into the silver market well they did enough to kind of kick the silver market um, because they got enough people to back the idea of trying to buy physical silver all at once and we went through this very interesting gap of a supply chain problem where suddenly i couldn't get half dollars i couldn't get quarters it lasted a couple weeks i mean they really made a dent Um, if you gather enough people together simultaneously and you know focus their money i mean think about what a laser is you know it's a light beam that is spread out that is now reduced down to a very tight spread and gets very powerful so that same concept applies to 
large numbers of people attacking a commodity all at once. You know, if you, if, if you had tens of millions of listeners and you told them all tomorrow to go out and buy physical, I don't care what it is, oil, silver, anything, and they all did it, that would be enough to have an impact. So, yeah, um, it was a really interesting thing to see <clears throat> how rapidly that push had an impact on the physical supplies. I mean, I've been watching very carefully the supplies of the old silver coins because unlike silver bars that they keep mining and minting and cranking more out, they can't go back to 1964 to make another quarter. So whatever's floating around in the world at this point is of the remaining physical supply that exists that can never be changed. That quantity is already locked and fixed. Mm -hmm. So if you increase the demand any way at all, you're going to change the price and availability. And it happened. Uh, Reddit was successful in that. On this argument, writes Joanne, she's in um, Houston, on this argument that it never would be, it's a good time to buy, I'm paraphrasing, gold and silver. Does Fred uh, change his prices uh, in, in tandem with the spot prices that we see online? Yes, you absolutely. Do? Whoa. Wow. Even, absolutely. Uh, even the for the, of, excuse me, even for the, the numismatic high um, valued for their, for their um, numismatic value, that, that changes because there's so much gold in the coin, correct? Yes. So okay. it, it's not a dollar for dollar thing on the numismatic rare gold coin, like an MS-65 $20 right. gold coin, but it does definitely affect things like the silver dimes and even the silver dollars. The more readily available that product is, the more closely tied to that movement in the price of gold or okay. silver. Okay. The more that is scarcity represents a portion of its value, the, le the less it's directly impacted. But, you know, a, a 20 or 30 or $50 swing in the price of gold, that will affect even a numismatic coin to a little bit of a degree. So, yes, uh, we do have to adjust according to the current market. And I we see. do. Because there's almost an ounce of uh, gold in a St. Gardens, uh, yes, right? Yes, there is an ounce of gold. So if gold goes from 1700 to 2500 those coins go up in value. They do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. And uh, not only do they go up equal to that increase in the price of gold, but they tend to increase more than that because that additional demand that starts to kick in begins to kick that supply problem and, uh. and really exacerbate it more so the premium value that they carry also begins to expand uh this by the way is one of the interesting benefits of owning silver coins the premiums have been going up this year very consistently even when the price of silver bullion have dropped so you know silver was 24 25 dollars an ounce and now runs just shy of you know a little bit under 20 that five dollars is you know 20 20 20 percent or so of its market price but the premiums on silver coins have gone up five or six times this year because even though the metal price has gone down, the availability of coins has not increased. So we're still facing a supply and demand problem. But they are affected mm. uh, much more by the price of the bullion market, the old dimes and quarters, because they're the most common and readily available product. I mean, you could buy a uh, million dollars worth of pre-65 dimes. You could. You know, you could do that, and they're available. Um, you know, it may take a little bit of time to get that together, but it is available. Unlike trying to get a million dollars worth of individual rare coins, you couldn't do that sometimes in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So the more readily available the product is, the more closely 
uh, it will follow those ups and downs, which is why I think with the dollar being so strong, conversely, having pushed down the price of silver and gold temporarily, I think this has created a buying opportunity. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to talk to Fred about uh, the specials, there are St. Gardens and Indian Head and also some silver dimes, a thousand, and some uh, 10 silver dollars. Just call him at 800-878-2646. Talk to his team and and they'll explain more about these specials. He got a great price. So we're going to leave you with a um, a headline just in. U.S. and G7 discuss capping Russian oil price at 40 to $60, a move which could send oil soaring to $380. So sure. I, don't, I don't understand well, that. Why would that? I mean, that's probably just fear porn headline, right? I mean, it wouldn't really, would it? Well, politically, what's happening is, is that you know, Russia defaulted on its debt for the first time since the Bolshevik revolt in yes. 1917. They're beginning to have some problems because the U.S. has prevented them from moving money through the international banking system yeah. so they've been having a troubling time converting rubles into foreign currencies to pay off debt so they ended up defaulting and they are making a ton of money because they're still producing oil yeah so their revenues have increased like a hundred billion dollars they're doing in the fine last year they're doing so fine yeah. so they're, they're making tons of money so what they're trying to do is they're saying well the sanctions that we've imparted on russia may not be sufficient if they can keep getting away with it because they can keep making money selling oil but if we cap their oil at a fixed price, we can prevent them from benefiting from yeah, but they can't, making all this profit. Fred, you just can't do that. Putin's just got to say, you know, pay me a hundred bucks. So what is he going? What are they going to do? They need uh, his oil. These people, they're, they're lunatics. These G seven. Well, again, it's it's, it's <laughs> trying to say how locked in can we keep everybody within the market? Right. right? Can we can we can we make you play games with us because you know you're locked into our system? Otherwise, we could impart the sanctions against you. So I could say to you, you either go along with this idea of not paying him more than $40 per barrel, or we're going to institute sanctions against you as well. Against you, right. So, so they go. Right? But the uh, EU is my understanding. I could be wrong, but they, they cannot survive without Russia's oil. They can't do it. Sure. Our gas. They can't a do it. A lot of them can't. No. They're not gonna do it. You know, and Russia's in a very interesting position. He's in because a pretty it has, strong position. Imagine Imagine if it didn't have those oil reserves uh, to produce. I mean, it would really be in trouble because the ruble has dramatically dropped uh, and is becoming, you know, stronger as it recovers. But the willingness of foreign investors to hold rubles has dropped dramatically because people are concerned about its stability. Oh, I thought you know, the ruble has come back. It hasn't come back. Uh, it's come back, but it's it's become questionable. A lot of people are becoming less willing to store rubles or accept payment in rubles because they're afraid, even though it may be okay right now, because of this political dynamic, it's, you know, how do we know what it's really going to look like in a month or two months or three months? You know, who knows what other sanctions are going to be imposed and will that have an impact on it? It's become questionable. Yeah. So people so, are not as convinced that it's a great place to store money. So here's where they were in February 11th, right before they invaded. Point zero one three three. Does that mean one cents per per euro per ruble for day? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then if you go up to it peaked uh, in well it peaked in June twenty nine at point um, zero one eight. That's not a lot, but right. It's uh, a lot. That's a lot. But now it's down to um, today. It's it's really dropped the last week or so. 
point, that's what you're referring to, point zero one five. So they've, yep, they've been true. talking a lot of people, I guess, uh, the boys been talking a lot of people in there, don't, don't, don't buy rubles. Well, again, I think it's that, and I think a lot of foreign countries are questioning uh, the rationale of having to hold a large quantity of rubles that, you know, if, if any currency is subject to change in value, the ruble is definitely on the top yeah, of the short list, yeah. right? So it could fall apart. It could lose 50% of its value tomorrow, and no one would be surprised by that. So when, it, when a country is being uh, bombarded by, um, you know, financial war, well, you just don't know where the currency will end up. And I think that questionable nature is kind of leaving that bad right. taste in foreign investors' mouths to where, yeah. I don't know if I want to store rubles. I'd rather hold dollars. But I believe, I've, well, I did read that in many cases, uh, Putin is demanding rubles for his stuff. And he's, he's getting yep. it, too, because they need it. And he's... And he's trying to force people to accept payment. I wouldn't blame him. That's what I'd be doing. <laughs> sure. If I was him, well, I'd be doing that. Boy, this is crazy land, isn't it? If you look at the big picture, oh, man. Oh, I just wanted to do a little addendum. We had Tom Luongo on, who's a pretty smart guy with money and geopolitics, yesterday. And he said that the EU has never been in a more dangerous position financially in the banks, in the history of these banks. He said they're in deep doo-doo. They're all underwater, the European banks. Well, remember, the euro is only, what, 20 years old? Yeah, so, I mean, really. I mean, it, it, it um, has survived very well, but it is also facing its own internal problems worse than the United States, which is what's driving a lot of that capital here. So I can understand that premise that, yeah. um, you know, there's questions. You know, there are people that are raising the argument again about whether the euro will survive yeah yeah we haven't heard that in in a decade you know no one has been questioning the stability or the survivability of the euro until recently where suddenly now everybody's again beginning to say well you know what's going to keep the euro strength and, and everything we're you talking know, why, about why fred geopolitically really brings home the old idea that we'll end on is that each country They have to have confidence in the currency, their currency, and that's the whole game, isn't it? It's like if it you have, a, it's it like if confidence. you have a if you have a currency that people want and will use, and it's actually strong, and even without backing, you're you're in the game, aren't you? You're in right. the game. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. And this is why pieces that, of paper, you know, that, pieces uh, of paper. Problem, <laughs> that's why the Fed is so concerned that the public in America will be worried about inflation. You know, they have to sustain consumer confidence yeah. in the overall economic environment. And they're afraid that if they let inflation run away, um, that consumers will lose confidence. And that really will infiltrate the economy. Again, just adding to the slew of problems the Fed has to try to deal with that's on its plate. So they're working very hard to try to maintain stability in an economic environment that is anything but. <laughs> and remember now, all of this stuff, all of it, is based on the idea that we do not have sound money anywhere in the world anymore. Yes, sir. No if we had a sound money system, none of these things would be happening. None of them. Nothing. Well, well said. Yeah, well said. All right, Fred, uh, your number up there is 800-878-2646. Uh, U.S. Coin Capital. You got a team up there. will help people if they want to just 
get some and you spend time with people too don't you if you have the time to to talk to them about what they're doing and what they want to do and then it's good we do and we want to make sure that people are approaching this correctly you know i try to avoid people who call me and are speculating on some short-term economic disaster that they've heard about on the internet <laughs> that you know the dollar is going to fall apart tomorrow or right. you know the great global reset's going to happen next week or this is going to happen or that's going to happen and because of that silver's going to 200 dollars an ounce by you know by august i i really try to stay away from that uh, as a method for people to accumulate i think the process should be about diversification that's really all it's about. Just don't store all of the wealth that you have that you're putting away longer term in money that's subject to changing value in a negative fashion, which is the problem with paper. You can't expect paper to sustain its buying power. And so accumulate a portion of your wealth in physical gold and silver coins. Take possession of the actual gold and silver coins and put them away. And you'll be far better off five years down the road than you know if you didn't. And what we see going on, I mean, look at look at Putin who had, I don't know, what, how many billions somewhere else that he wasn't in possession of? They took it. That's a perfect example of you better have possession of whatever you own, dude. Absolutely. Or it could leave. It can leave. Look what they did. I don't know how they even got away with that. I'd like to dig into that someday. Uh, do you know how much they, they took of Putin's money? No, I don't know the final number, but you, know, you can imagine. It was Remember big. like Andy used to talk about FinCEN and... Yeah, financial crimes enforcement network. So think about they spent decades, you know, establishing these various methods of tapping into people's funds yeah. around the world. Okay. You know, uh, I can only imagine the technology that's involved in doing that. But yeah, I mean, it's part of what it is that constitutes where is your money? Yeah, where is it? Is it in your possession or is it sitting in an account somewhere that somebody could attack? And this is why I don't believe in storage programs or things of that nature. Not that any of them have proven necessarily to be, you know, criminalistic, right. but why take the chance? You know, the, the, the safest method for me, in my experience, for investors in accumulating money is to have physical possession of their own wealth control of their own money and the best way to do that is to own that physical gold and silver coin and have it in your possession so the only way i will ever deal with this is you will take delivery immediately of anything that you acquire through our company mm -hmm. i will not store it for you it's going to be shipped directed to you you own it 100 percent outright it's yours i think it's a good point too i mean these places are always these storage places are probably pretty good i mean texas has their own central storage for gold thing now it you know it looks pretty good they got armies around it and fences but i i, I like what you're saying is why even take a chance why even right why even separate yourself from it doesn't make sense because what what happens if some government entity decides to take control over that whole entity that's right that's right and stops every every account that's in it from accessing it you know they could do that all in one fell swoop so if you own your gold and silver in your possession it pretty much prevents anybody from anything it's you know you're, you're in control and that's the way it should be you just gotta be careful not to lose it right <laughs> right that's it's easy to do just get creative all right fred thanks a lot we love you brother that was a great show i really enjoyed all the deep history we dug into i learned a lot and i will see you real soon right it was a pleasure patrick always and the best to the listening audience we hope everybody is enjoying a happy and healthy time and uh, all I can say is, you know, with all this stuff, I am optimistic about the future of America as a nation. But I think, you know, 
freedom comes with some responsibility. And, you know, as we said at the outset, if we're at a point where people don't even know why we're celebrating July 4th, we need to go back to some basics. <laughs> need a reboot. Simple education. <laughs> Little you know, reboot. If we can get around to people understanding money, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we try to do here. Fred, thanks a lot. Take care. Love you. Patrick Tempone, Fred Dushevsky in the real world of money. And Fred's, let me put his thing up there so you can get another shot. 800-878-2646, U.S. Coin Capital. You can uh, go on the web and uh, read about his company. 800-878-2646. For those of you who are new, uh, he and Andrew started a company, this company long ago, Andrew Goss, who uh, I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing every day for, I don't know, 20 years? Not every, once a week for 20 years with the KLBJ and then here, One Radio Network. And then Andrew left us and then Fred rebooted his company, restructured it, and it's U.S. Coin Capital. So he's been in the business for a very, very long time. So that's what you want. Somebody that knows their stuff. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to uh, take a little break here. I think I'm going to get some orange juice, if that's okay. And I'm going to be back in about um, 10 minutes. We'll start about noon. And we're going to talk about a few things, a lot about health, diet, and things like that, coming up in about 10 minutes here on OneRadioNetwork.com. Thanks for your support. If you need something, some of the products that we um, um, we um, you know we promote, please uh, uh, think about us. Uh, go to our website, One Radio Network. Click on the ads and uh, check out the wonderful people that we promote. And that's how we earn our Federal Reserve notes, such as they are. So we'd appreciate you doing that. We have a lot of really great products. So thanks for doing that. So we're going to see you in a few minutes. Stay right there. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.